Good morning. My name is Jacob Warren. Uh, can we thank the band for leading us in worship well? There's a number of new faces up here, um, guys leading in worship, stepping into leadership here at the church, being able to lead us in worship, and I'm just really grateful for them. Hopefully, you are as well. Uh, if you're new with us here at Veritas Church, maybe on the way in, you stopped by the Connect table and grabbed one of these. If you are new, I would like to invite you to grab one of these. It kind of gives you an idea of who we are, um, like what we're all about here as a church and ways that you can help, uh, you can connect with us as a church family. Um, but uh, that aside, go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. Um, this week will be the last week for Genesis, um, and just a, uh, just we're going to take a four-week break throughout the month of April, where we will be focusing on Jesus and the cross, uh, where we're going to take a, a break and a, take a pit stop and, and look at uh, Easter in the Gospel of Luke, where we'll see the table, the cross, the tomb, and the road over the next four weeks. Um, this is a great time if you are a follower of Jesus to invite your friends to join you at church um, because um, statistically, uh, if you have folks that um, aren't followers of Jesus, have questions about Jesus, have questions about the Bible, have questions about faith, and they're your friend, uh, they will join you, uh, specifically on Easter Sunday, because, hey, they don't have anything else better to do. March Madness will be over by then. And so um, they'll be able to join with you and hear the good news about Jesus. Hopefully for the next four weeks, you will as well see the good news of the gospel as we look at the table, the cross, the tomb, and the road. Uh, another thing is we're going to be having a Good Friday service um, before Easter Sunday, and we'd love to see you there on that night as well. But for now... What we have for this, this morning is Genesis chapter 35. What we're going to do is we're going to read through this entire passage together this morning, uh, seeing again God's grace on display, seeing the, the reality of brokenness, but then also the hope in a future king. And so what we're going to do is read all of chapter 35 together, and then uh, we will see what God has for us out of that text. So if you will follow along in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible and you grabbed one at the back, consider that Bible our gift to you. It'll also come up on the screens for us as we read it. Genesis 35, the very words of Christ for us this morning start like this. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who has answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had, the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. And they, they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed to himself when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again, and he came from Padan Aran and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. 
God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where God had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Epath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, that is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent towards beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher, and these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, Kirithath, Arabah, that is Hebron. And there Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob buried him. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord this morning, right? So 29 long verses later. How are we doing, church? Good, good, good. This text has a lot in it. Okay, instead of um, one kind of thinking about a text like this, we often think of chapters of the Bible like one long movie um, where it has this one continual arc telling this one story. This movie is less like watching uh, like one Star Wars movie and watching uh, like those episodes of The Mandalorian where it's broken up over uh, like an episode and an episode and an episode and an episode. Um, this section, uh, we can see it on the screens, it's blown out like this. There's eight kind of mini episodes in this one chapter, all piled on top of one another. First, you have the call of God after Jacob's complacency there in Shechem, the call to purify and the burial of the idols, God's divine protection in the death of Deborah. God Almighty, his name, uh, is, appears to Jacob in Bethel. Then you have the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. Then beyond that, you see the sin of Reuben, his firstborn. Then the genealogy laid out this completion of the 12 tribes and the fulfillment, finally, of God's promise to see his father, but also the death of Isaac. See, that's a lot of stuff, and we could dig into all of that. I and mean, If we had six hours, we'd break it out over all those episodes and watch them all together and break it all apart. But I think there's three main things that this text shows us that are that through line, and they're not surprising. They're not fancy. They're things that we've seen before. One, we see the grace of God, the reality of brokenness, but the hope of a future king. 
Let's dive in first with seeing what this text shows us about the grace of God. This first This text has the grace of God on display, and we've seen week after week after week in the life of Jacob. We've even titled this section of Genesis, Living in Grace, because Jacob, as we know, constantly gets it wrong. He constantly blows it. He has to be living in grace, because he surely is not earning anything for himself other than destruction and harm. Last week was a great example of it, right? He settles in Shechem. He sets up booths. He, this is going to be our base camp. This is going to be home. Instead of going all the way to Bethel, he was so close, but he settles for Shechem. He shacks up there, and then what happens? The defilement of his daughter, the rape of her, and Jacob's complacency in all of this, his lack of action, results in the indignant anger of his children, his you know maybe good-hearted boys, but they have evil on their hands because what they do is they trick these other guys and they end up murdering an entire city. All of the males in that city die because of Jacob's complacency in this. And let's stop here for a moment and say, isn't this kind of the silent killer in our own lives when it comes to following Jesus? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, It's not normally the one big sin that you all flame out in a blaze of glory that gets you, that shows you, man, I'm in a really bad spot. I'm in a really bad place with following Jesus. It's complacency. It's this slow fade over time, backing out of community. It's this slow fade towards not being known, not confessing sin, not walking in faithfulness in Jesus. And you wake up one day and you think, what in the world am I doing? How did I get here? And you're like, Jacob, it takes months sometimes for you to realize that. But to Jacob, who's been in Shechem for 15 years, God says this in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This is a gracious wake-up call to Jacob. And it's not just a wake-up call. This is an invitation to intimacy here. Now, you may not have noticed, but for the past two chapters, there has not been an interaction between God and Jacob. Since Jacob um, wrestled God in the night, God comes as a man, he wrestles with him all night long, and Jacob gets to see the face of God, but he's not revealed the name of God and so God has been silent for two, for two chapters. And in the first words off of the mouth of God in the face of Jacob's complacency and his sin is, come to me, come to me. So often don't we as followers of Jesus think that God is just waiting for us to screw up so that he can smash us like a bug, like he's an unfit father, like he's a unrighteous father who just wants to lord his authority over us and tell us what to do and where to go and where to be. No, this God says, come to me. Come worship. This is an invitation in. This is not a scolding. See, the God of the Bible is surprisingly different. When he speaks to Jacob here, it is a tender welcome in. Even Jacob's response here is another grace of God on display. His response is, immediate. Let's go to Bethel. So Jacob does a surprising thing. He also realizes that he is defiled, 
that he is a sinner, that he is in need of grace, and he realizes the things that they've accumulated in that slow fade over the years, those idols, those things that they picked up along the way are actually defiling them and they have no right to be in the presence of a holy God. He gathers up all of the foreign idols and religious things and what does he do? He buries them under the terebinth tree. It's kind of like when I was growing up, you, what you did with the things that you like needed to get rid of right then, you put them in the burn barrel. Does anybody remember the burn barrel? Anybody grow up with a burn barrel? I had a burn barrel. Super illegal, right? Super illegal. It's like burning tires or something. But the burn barrel is where you put your trash that it needed to go away somewhere quick, right? It was the, the, the styrofoam plates after the Sunday uh, dinner at grandma's house, right? You went and put them out there in the burn barrel. You set them on fire, and nothing came out of the barrel except for the aluminum, right? That's it. You had to fish it out of the bottom with a, with a rake or something. But this is what Jacob does. These, I, what I think the, the image of it here is, remember, through this passage, you see Deborah gets buried underneath a tree, a tree that is called the oak of weeping. All these other places where people are buried, there's these markers, these things, these tree-like things in those places. Even where Isaac dies is the place where the flourishing of all the trees are at Mamre, where all the terebinths are. I think these idols are being put to death here. Jacob is saying they have no right in the presence of God, therefore they must die. They're getting buried here under this tree. See, Jacob knows he cannot take these idols into the presence of God. His family must be purified from their sinful idolatry. Jacob is walking out what the psalmist would later write in Psalm 24. Words will come up on the screen for you. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Remember, God's calling him up to Bethel. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? But he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Jacob has changed and is by the grace of God. We see this is not something that Jacob took into his own hands. God has changed him. Not only does he remove the idols, he goes to Bethel in obedience and God protects him all along the way. There at Bethel, God not only appears to him there, but he reiterates the change of his name from Jacob to Israel. And if you'll notice, if you read back through the passage, maybe later on this afternoon or tomorrow, there's this back and forth of Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel, in this passage, back and forth. Go, go look at it for yourselves. God is reiterating, Jacob, you no longer shall be called. Israel should be your name. But he doesn't give him uh, a scolding about why his name is Israel like he did back in the earlier chapter. He doesn't mention the fact that Jacob wrestles with God. It seems like Jacob is walking in a new identity. Yes, he previously wrestled with God. But now, Jacob as Israel is the one in which when he wrestles, when he wrestles with things outside, when he wrestles with other people, God is on his side. He wrestles with God on his side. See, Jacob isn't wrestling anymore. Look at verse 3 again. He says, let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that there I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. See, at Bethel, God finally grants Jacob, now Israel's request, to know his name. 
Look again at verse 11 with me of Genesis 35. Verse 11 and 12. We read this. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come to you, and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. This God, God Almighty, the one who not only pronounces blessing of children and kings and nations and lands, but also this God keeps his promises. Remember the first time Jacob met this God? He met God with the the ladder extending from heaven to earth. There, Jacob made a vow. And he said, God, if you keep me, if you give me food to eat and clothing for my back and bring me back in peace to the house of my fathers, then you will be my God. This God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, is now Jacob's God. And not only that, God has kept the fulfillment of his promise that Jacob made to him. At the end of this passage of Genesis 35, he is brought back in peace to see his father. God has shown Jacob complete faithfulness in his grace. God has kept his promises. But although we see clearly the grace of God in display throughout this entire text and this whole chapter, this story is marked with the reality of brokenness, of sin, of pain, of of loss, of death, of sexual perversion. These are sharp reminders. Not all things have been made right yet. Yes, God has kept his promises to Jacob, but the curse has not yet been reversed just yet. And this text forces us to see the reality of brokenness, uh, both in Jacob's story, but also in our world. Let's see the, the reality of brokenness in three big things. Death as a constant reminder of the fall. We'll look at the sin of Reuben and then also the pain of childbirth. Let's start with death. Death marks this entire story. First, the death of Deborah, Rachel's nurse, a good family friend who'd been with them for a long time. Think about one of your best friends dying. That's what would have, this would have been like. Then Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, the one in whom he loves, she dies in childbirth near Bethlehem, this tragic portrait of death. And then finally, yes, he gets to see his father, but Isaac dies shortly thereafter. And I would guess, and we're not told how long he got to spend and hang out with his dad, but I would guess it was not long enough. Many of us know the pain of losing a loved one, whether it's been um, a friend on the battlefield or it's been um, a loved one, a spouse you've had to bury um, after a long battle with cancer. Maybe it's your, one of your parents that you've seen pass away and go on to be with the Lord, or you've mourned their death. See, God is with us in our mourning, in our pain. God knows the pain and grieving process that follows in us. Death is a consequence for our sin and rebellion against God, and death is to be mourned. See, death is always accompanied with pain and suffering. I've personally watched the horror of my own grandfather passing away, just in the room over, listening to the death rattle on the other side of the wall. And we were paying 
We're praying for relief to come through death for him. We never wanted to see him leave. We never wanted to see him go. We wanted death to be defeated. We wanted pain to be gone in that moment. Yes, we should rightly rage against this pain, rage against this death, and hate it for what it is, is to be hated. See, death is always accompanied with pain. This is why we have the tradition as followers of Jesus, as Christians, of funerals where we mourn the loss of human life, that death is our enemy. But also in this story, we are reminded in a very short note, in one of those short little episodes in this, a note about Reuben, that sexuality has been broken and perverted in our broken world. And we're not told, like, what was the motivating factors here? We're just told that it happened and Israel knew about it. Jacob knew that it happened. We're not told that Reuben, whether this was a power play, he's like, I'm going to be the new alpha male here. I'm going to take charge of this family, even though Jacob's complacent. Or if this was just kind of some weird, perverted love affair or moment of temptation. We're, We're not told here, but what this is, is still sinful and shameful. Through this example of brokenness and sexuality in their day, I think we are to reflect rightly on the brokenness of sexuality in our own day. See, let's start with God's ideal, though. See, God's design for sex is glorious and beautiful. The coming together of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, the loving giving of oneself to your spouse, this is a beautiful gift from God. I mean, it's on the first page of the Bible where God makes man in his image, saying that both man and woman are made in his image, full of dignity, value, and worth, but working as complementary pieces of a puzzle that fit together to bring about the flourishing of all of creation. And the mandate and the thing that we're told to do on page one of the Bible, be fruitful and multiply, right? Come together. There's only one way to do that. There's only one way to have babies, right? Parents are going to have a fun conversation when you get home, right? But this is what we're called to. It's beautiful. But in the name of progress, we can't see, we can't say that like that picture of biblical sexuality and the place where sex is, is good and right and holy between that one man, one woman and the covenant of marriage isn't offensive to the world around us. Because it is. Our sexual ethic as followers of Jesus is going to be offensive to the world around us. It is. See, the world around us in the name of progress demands that we wholesale accept every expression, expression of sexuality. But in reality, this sexual revolution, as it's called, is not about the, brought about the progress of our sexual ethic, but the regression of our sexual ethic. See, Reuben having a stepmom as a lover might be the next plot of some Netflix rom-com, but it's wicked. It's wicked. It's sin. We should rightly say so. Now, in contrast to that church, we have a reputation as followers of Jesus, as Christians, that for much of history, we've not responded to sexual brokenness within the church and outside the church with dignity and grace, lifting the face of our brothers and sisters who have endured 
just horrendous things against them, or dealing with their own sexual brokenness themselves. We've instead heaped shame upon them in purity culture. We've instead tried to not talk about it at all and and, then leave them hanging out to dry. See, we as the church, this is supposed to be the place where sex is celebrated openly as the gift that it is. What could be more Christ-like than the Christian view of sex? That sex is this giving of oneself to a spouse, the self-sacrificial thing. Sadly, we are often reminded with as many examples of broken sexuality inside the church as we are outside of it. From the scandals and abuse covered up by church leaders to the shame produced from certain cultures within the church, we must admit that we often get this wrong and own it. To our friends outside of following Jesus, we must own that we have failed in this area as the church, but that should not deter us from holding to and pursuing the beauty that God intended by giving us as the gift of sex. See, in this, we represent the beautiful union of this coming together that God has established in our marriage. And I know this is uncomfortable for some, but we unapologetically call our brothers and sisters in Christ to walk in abstinence until they're married. Not heap shame, but coming alongside of one another, saying, no, we're, no, we're a family. My sexuality has been broken. Yours has been broken. Whether you're a, a military spouse experiencing separation from your spouse right now and having to navigate that road, or you're, you're single and you're waiting for marriage, maybe you have a same-sex attraction here and you just feel this crippling, intense shame over it, whether you're walking through a messy divorce or you just had your first kid and it's weird now, man, we're here for you. We're for you. That's what the family of God is all about. We are all beggars looking for bread. We are all broken in need of a Savior, and we need one another in this fight with one another. No wonder Reuben goes wrong. We all go wrong. And so what we need is we need people who love Jesus in our corner, cheering for us, praying for us, encouraging us to walk in faithfulness to Jesus. And one of the ways we do this as a church is we gather together in community groups where relationships can flourish, where intimacy can be had. And a brother can say to another brother, man, I blew this. My sexuality is broken in this way. Won't you pray with me? Won't you be in my corner? Won't you be on my side? This is what God intends for us as the church. There's another reality in this passage that this passage makes us painfully aware of, and we get a built-out picture of this. It's the pain in childbirth as well. Now, to be clear, pain in childbirth in particular was something that was an unfortunate reality of the fall. Back in Genesis 3, God says to the woman in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In light of these words, who has exemplified the consequences of sin, original sin, more than Rachel? She has certainly experienced a multiplication of pain in her quest to have children. 
Remember, chapters before this, the birth wars story between her and Leah, the, the relational strife that caused between them and Jacob and their entire family. There's been pain in childbearing. Also remember, she was barren for years. She had to watch these other women have children on her behalf while she sat, no, more than likely in tears, begging God for a child. Now, she's giving birth to her second child, it's going to literally kill her. See, her desire for the name of her baby boy is not honored in her death. She wanted his name to be Ben-Oni, but Jacob rules over her and names the child Benjamin instead. Now, I know personally, some of you here in this room, um, this passage about Rachel and this particular, sin, uh, this particular scenario of her dying in childbirth, you have had a traumatic birth experience. Um, you've experienced the pain of wondering whether or not you are going to die on that bed giving birth to your child and know that I'm sorry. I'm for you. We're for you as a church. Um, that is, again, an unfortunate consequence of sin in this world. And at the end of a passage like this, I need you to know that like, nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God, especially our suffering especially our suffering. See, at the end of a passage like this, again, at the end of Genesis 35, we are left wanting and waiting. We're left hungering and desiring for something more. We're left aching for all the brokenness, for all those things to be, that are wrong to be made right. Yes, we've seen the faithfulness of God on display, but beyond that, and we've seen the brokenness that's still there, we still need rescue from our sin. We need the defeat of our enemy of death, and we are left waiting for hope in a future king. Now, maybe you picked up on this in our first read-through of Genesis 35, or you kind of knew it was coming, but something happens when God reiterates his promise back to Jacob in verse 11. Look at it again, verse 11. This hasn't happened since Genesis 17. God says to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And he says this, a nation of company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. In Genesis 35, we get the promise of a king, of a coming king. Not only land, not only blessing, but a king who would come and reverse the curse. Now, Jacob had no idea that over the course of the rest of the Old Testament, the story that God, that would have, he would have been telling throughout this entire scriptures would be one of his sons would be the vehicle of blessing through whom God would keep his original blessing and promise to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How many nations? All of the nations. See, even the, the tragedy of Rachel's death would not be wasted in the story that God was telling. The image of her birth pains would come to exemplify and be one of the common ways the writers of the Bible would describe the groaning and the aching and the pains of us, of the, God's people waiting for the Messiah to come. Here's just one of them from Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, the one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
Therefore, he shall give them up until the time, listen for it, when she who is in labor has given birth. When the rest of her brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the, ma- in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. He shall be their prince. Church, did you pick up on all of that? The place where Rachel dies, Bethlehem, this is the place where the Messiah is coming from. This is where Jesus would be born. At the fulfillment of time, when she who was in labor has given birth, her brothers, all the nations, all of the peoples of Israel, shall all return, and he himself will be their shepherd. And they, they will be his flock, and he will rule them in peace. And this ruler won't just be any old ruler. This would not just be a Davidic king who would rule just the nations of Israel. His coming is from, from old, from ancient days. This is one who has always existed and who always will exist. This is God himself come in the flesh to the person and work of Jesus. He always will be proceeding from the Father as the Son. And this story not only foreshadows the coming of the king, but it also foreshadows the suffering of this king. Look at verse 18 again in Genesis 35. As her soul was departing, or she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Now, if you've got a Bible with footnotes, you can look at the bottom down here. It really helps with this section. She wanted to name this baby boy Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow or son of my strength. Like, all of my strength has been stripped of me to give to this baby boy through birth. And children is what she had begged Jacob for back in Genesis 30, saying, give me children or I die. Now she has two children from her own womb, Joseph, Jacob's favorite, and now baby Ben. And it's through the providence of God that Rachel's death would be through childbirth, but also that her death would bring life. Her death would bring life and that life would continue through her son, Benjamin will be a key centerpiece to the stories that will come after this in the stories that center on Joseph. Benjamin, Jacob's beloved baby boy, thinking that his older son Joseph is dead, would become the apple of Jacob's eye. Imagine Jacob as a father looking at Benjamin, and every time he looks at that little boy, he sees the eyes of his mother. He sees his wife who died in childbirth, to bring him into the world. He would at the same time see Benjamin as the son of sorrow, but also as the son of the right hand, the son of strength, that he names him Benjamin, son of the right hand. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus this morning, when you look upon your Savior, you should at once see the son of sorrow, but also the son of strength. We are foretold through the prophet Isaiah that Jesus would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like Josh said earlier, he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was the suffering that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. See, on the cross of Jesus, where he died, through his death, he paved the way through new life for us, dying like Rachel to bring life to us, His sorrow and the giving up of his strength saved us who were weak and in the need of new life. But not only that, 
Jesus was resurrected from the dead and right now sits at the right hand of the Father, the Son of the right hand, in power on high. Philippians 2 says this, that being found in human form, he, did not, he, uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore now, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is the son of the right hand and the son of sorrow. Church, this is the good news of the gospel, that the king has come, that he rules, that we are the recipients of the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. And in his kingdom, brokenness doesn't get the last word. In his kingdom, our sexual brokenness doesn't get the last word. Marital strife, war does not get the last word, but peace. Jesus gets the last word in everything. And his last words for us is that all of the things necessary to bring us back into right relationship with God the Father, he says, it is finished. His last words on the cross. He welcomes us back into right relationship for himself. In light of a passage like this, we're to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, how are we called to live in the light of this? I just want to walk us through a couple quick things. First, acknowledge God's call in your life. Like Jacob, God has called you. If you're here and you've not believed in the good news of the gospel, the call in your life is clear. Believe. Believe in the good news of the gospel. These promises are for you this morning. Freedom from your sin, freedom from your shame, freedom from the fear of death. That's for you this morning. Grab hold to what Jesus is offering you. But also if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you have been uniquely and distinctly called by God. And that's a precious thing. Don't lose your, your grasp on that. Jesus has not only saved us, he saved you. He chose you. Beauty in that. Second thing, purify yourself from idols that you've picked up along the way. I think it's a good thing, it's a right thing, and it's a godly thing to often evaluate oneself and say, man, where are my blind spots? Where am I getting it wrong? Where are things I've just kind of picked up culturally along the way? What are practices that I've engaged in my life that really are sin, but I'm just not engaged with it right now. I'm not really confessing it. I'm not bringing it forward. And so a practice that I find is helpful, is to go before God in prayer and say, God, give me eyes to see. But then also to come to other people who are followers of Jesus in my life and say, hey, where are my blind spots? Where am I getting it wrong? And believe me, church, like you're going to want to prepare yourself before that, right? Like you're going to need to like be okay with some hard answers there, especially if you ask your spouse, <laughs> because they can see See, we're not only brought onto the team when we've become a follower of Jesus just to rejoice in the, the, the blessings that we have in that relationship, but we're also called to participate. We're called to push back darkness, to promote flourishing in our world. Yes, we're to pray for our city, but also serve it. See, when, you're, when you've been brought on the team as a follower of Jesus, you are called to not only walk in faithfulness to Jesus, but to stand for justice to promote what is good while also calling out what is sin and not just on Twitter. See, instead of hating those who stand opposed to Jesus, 
and what the Bible says, Jesus calls us to embody a different way, to invite others into his loving rule, to love our neighbor and pray for those who would call us their enemies. And lastly, we're to live joyfully awaiting Jesus's return. I'm convinced that many of us don't live like Jesus is actually going to come back. We don't have that in our minds. We're just not thinking about it. It's like kind of an out of sight, out of mind thing. We just think, you know, I'm working towards that, getting that 401k, just trying to get to retirement. Like my dad just retired a couple weeks ago. Um, he's in a different season of life. And, and many of us are just trying to work towards the next end point, the next goal, the next thing in front of us. And we're really not living in the light of Jesus' imminent return. Like Jesus could come back at any moment, and we're to live in light of that. And that shouldn't pr- produce a fear in us. It should produce joy in us. Hear what Paul says in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's us, church. That's us. Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, redemption of our bodies. Paul's talking about the new heavens and the new earth here. He's talking about all the wrongs made right. Jesus' rule over everything forever made public because he will be, with here, be here with us and we will be with him. God will dwell with his people for eternity. It will be the flourishing of all of humankind like we've never seen before because it's not like the garden. It's better than the garden. We're going to be brought in full, perfect communion with our God, and it's going to be better than anything we could ever imagine. That should fill us with joy. It should fill us with hope. We're not full of fear about our God. We are full of joy because Jesus has not only saved us, he's not only rescued us, but he's given us his spirit. We're called to live joyfully awaiting Jesus' soon return to make all things new. Church, let me pray that we would. God, I pray that this morning you would rejuvenate our joy in the fact that you are not only the king who has already come to take our place and to offer yourself as the sacrifice for sin in our place, but God, you are coming back again to make all things new. Yes, you have defeated death are resurrecting from the grave, giving us the promise of, of eternal life. But God, in this life, may we joyfully await your return, knowing that you are going to completely vanquish death, know that, knowing that you're going to completely right all of the wrongs within us, within our sin. And God, you're going to wipe away every tear from every eye. Pain will be no more. Let the hope of that bright future drive us to joyful obedience in you. Drive us to joyful living alongside of other people that are at odds and at war seemingly with us as followers of Jesus. May we, Lord Jesus, love those who stand opposed to us. May we love and pour out kindness on those who would reject you, Lord Jesus showing them that there is a better way of living, that there is this inward, indwelling Holy Spirit within us that makes the impossible possible within us. 
And God, may that produce not, not an arrogance in us, but a humility to act towards those who are far from you, Jesus, with a love, praying for their allegiance to you, Lord Jesus, and for their um, brokenness to be made right in you. Lord Jesus, may we acknowledge our own brokenness now as we come to the table. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.